Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. Love, love, love this company. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode. But now, on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Uh, in this week's weekly roundup, uh, we're pouring one out for Mr. Mark Yusko, who's on a ski trip, uh, but I'm representing him here today. And this is going to feel like an episode of Forward Guidance. It's the crossover that we all knew we needed eventually. I'm joined by Mr. Jack Farley and Mr. Joseph Wang, a.k.a. Fed Guy. Gentlemen, welcome to On the Margin. Great to be here. Great to be here. This is awesome because I feel like I'm like live in an interactive episode of Forward Margin where I actually get to ask my questions <laughs> as, they're, as they're popping up. So I'm super excited about this one. Um, yeah, this is the just, premium, gonna... premium level of Forward Guidance where it's an extra level, but if you pay extra, you actually get to be the host and ask Joseph <laughs> Wang your questions. <laughs> yeah, undisclosed how much I paid for this, uh, but uh, it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. Uh, this is priceless, really, at the end of the day, I feel like. Um, so, and I'm glad, Joseph, that you're joining us here today because this is going to be a relatively technical episode. Um, so Jack and I were going to have our chops tested, but now we can just By the way, Joseph, you. like, we're not going to, we're rolling out the all-star team today. And there's a reason because we had just an epic, huge, insane past two days of macro. Uh, yesterday, I'll just, the, the inflation print came out at 8.30 Eastern time last morning. It was above expectations. And shortly thereafter, about 11 a.m. noon, uh, uh, Fed, a Fed guy, not the Fed guy, Joseph's the Fed guy, but a Fed guy, Bullard, went out and spoke to a reporter. And then we had a huge repricing on the short end. We had 25 basis points uh, uh, sell-off in the two-year. It, it, it went up. Um, that's the greatest move, I think, since June 5th, 2009. Uh, some insane action in the Fed funds futures markets. Now people are post. People are saying it's 2008 all over again. Uh, people are you know, saying... This happened to Bear Stearns. People are posting charts about inverted one-year forward OIS uh, spreads between the 10 and the two-year. So we need Joseph. We need the A-team. So, uh, yeah, glad you're here, Joseph. Glad to be here. <laughs> that was such a better framing than I did. Put me to shame ah. on my own show here, Jack. <laughs> I'm just like, so Joseph, what do you think of this CPI print? The Jack lays it out perfectly. But that being said, Joseph, when you're looking at this chart, which is uh, we've got headline CPI, we've got core CPI, we're breaking it out by goods, services, food, and energy. Um, what kind of stands out to you when you're looking at this chart? Uh, not transitory is what stands out. <laughs> Look at that. I mean, what's insane is that you have you have inflation accelerating month over month, right? So that that's not supposed to happen. You have what what could potentially be. A, a wage inflation spiral happening, and that's that's the Fed's worst nightmare. You know, if you remember last year, everyone on Team Fed, on Team Establishment, was telling you that this is just transitory; it's going to go back down. Doesn't look like it. And I think what the market is 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 uh, pricing in is that you know this this is going to require a lot more aggressive Fed action, which is why you have people uh, like Bullard coming out and talking about potentially. 50 basis points in March, which is why, Jack, as you mentioned, you had such a huge, huge rise in two-year yields. It's a market waking up that, you know, inflation might not be transitory. That means the Fed is going to have to get a lot more aggressive. Uh, Joseph, what do you think about this idea that, um, you know, a lot of what's causing uh, inflation right now is actually difficulties in the supply chain, right? Kind of these supply chain constraints we've been hearing so much about. That actually seems to be outside of the domain of the Federal Reserve. And it's unclear, at least to me, about how hiking interest rates is going to 
impact that 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 price inflation at all. So what do you think about that idea that the Fed actually might be hiking into a slowdown and these price increases that we're seeing is actually caused by, you know, the supply chain, which the Fed has basically no input over? Yeah, Mike, you make a really good point. So so part of this is supply driven. We read about that all the time, right? We could just look on the news. There's a chip shortage and it looks like we have a huge, huge backlog in the shipping lanes. Um, so that that's part of it. But there's another part as well, and that's demand. Now, if you think back what happened a couple for the past couple years, we had tremendous, tremendous stimulus. So one way you can think about this is that so the federal government did fiscal spending, de- deficit fiscal spending, about $3.5 trillion. That's money that they basically printed out and just spent on goods and services. And, you know, if you print you know, $3.5 and you spend it, you're going to have more demand, right? Money is a form of demand. Well, money, money is purchasing power. It is demand. So you have higher demand as well. So you have two things happening. You have, you know, impeded supply chains, as you mentioned, but you also have tremendous demand. And on top of that, you have a ginormous, ginormous explosion in asset values. So everyone feels wealthier because everyone really is wealthier. You have a lot of um, spending from the federal government, but you also, if you own equities, if you own a house, you have uh, your, your, your appreciation has been 30% over the past couple of years. Everyone has a lot more money to spend, and that's demand. The Fed can't stop uh, can't fix the supply issue, as you mentioned, but it can fix the demand issue. And what that means, of course, is haircutting asset prices. So making the stock market go a bit lower, putting a little downward pressure on the housing market by making mortgage rates a little bit more expensive. So they have some policy levers. It's They're very blunt, but they do work if uh, if they employ them aggressive enough. I mean, think think about it. If you have, if, if let's say the S&P fell 30%, that, that definitely, I think, impacts the amount of wealth people have and their many amount of spending they do, hence their demand. Yeah, the, the CPI, it was broad-based. A lot of that headline 7.5 was due to uh, energy prices and food prices. So some people like to exclude that, and they only talk about core CPI. CPI. But the core CPI chart is, looks pretty ominous as well. And particularly uh, things that went up, I think the, the price of owner-equivalent rent and shelter went up 0.4% month over month and something like 4.1% year over year. That's for the entire country. And then, uh, I mean, I am cherry-picking here, but like I looked at San Diego. Like The price of electricity went up 14%. You're probably thinking, fill in the blank, you're probably thinking year over year, you know, January of 2022 to January 2021. No. Month over month, electricity went up in San Diego, 15%. Now I'm sure there's something with the power company there. But, you know, I mean, that is the most extreme example. But this is really uh, hurting people's pocketbooks, and particularly people who are on, on like, a fixed income, like a, a social security, or people who are in, you know, maybe they work for the government, and you can't exactly, like, expect an 80% pay raise from the government, you know, now can you? Um, you know, they, they, people are getting squeezed. So if we, if we look at this chart, uh, this is the uh, U.S. average hourly earnings. And I believe this is, uh, this is an, in real terms, right? Or no, sorry. Uh, uh, this is, yeah, this is in real terms. So inflation adjusted, people, people are losing money. And then you look at, uh, you know, as inflation goes up on the right chart, Biden's approval rating going down. So people like Jim Bianco, who I'm going to interview uh, tomorrow that will air on Sunday, he's saying that, uh, uh, um, you know, the, the Fed has a model for, int- for whether it's going to raise interest rates, and it's just Biden's approval rating. <laughs> yeah, Jim Bianco's great. Um, so yeah. I, I think that definitely plays a, plays a big role. 
And one of the interesting things you noted, Jack, is that core, everything is going higher. Because everything is going higher, that's how you know there's a very strong demand component. Because if it was just supply chains, you know, let's mm. say maybe computers or cars, they get more expensive, then people buy less and buy other stuff. But when everything gets more expensive, then there's just too much money. There's just too much wealth. And that's something that uh, rate hikes can um, have an impact on. And you, I think I think not just this, but also the um, consumer sentiment data is, is telling the similar story. People are feeling unhappy, right? So consumer sentiment is very low. People's approval of the political, um, of the government is low. And that, that has to do with many things, but I think part of it is probably related to the pandemic as well. But inflation, lower real wages, definitely a big part as well. And that chart just, that chart just shows it beautifully, actually. Yeah, and people are saying, well, because consumer sentiment is so low, they're saying it's the worst time to buy a fridge, the worst time to buy a house since for, forever, then that's going to depress demand, and therefore that will cause deflation. But we haven't really seen that yet. Uh, Joseph, I really, you know, that's kind of a narrative. We, you're, you're rare, you're special. You're one of the few people who gets the plumbing of the market. So let's actually, I don't want to talk about the narratives. Let's just go right into this next chart, which is uh, uh, the, the sort of Euro-dollar markets. Uh, and it's, it's been crazy out there, Joseph. Uh, you know, if you go on the Fed Fund's uh, probability calculator uh, from the CME, which takes the Fed Fund's rate and implies how off, how, what's the likelihood that the market is pricing for how much the Fed will hike. It was just like, it was a, it was a ticking time bomb yesterday, whereas we were going into Thursday, February 10th at uh, about a 25% chance uh, uh, that the Fed would do a, the, the, the feared double hike in March, raise it, the, the reference rate that the um, Fed funds rate from 50 basis points to 75%, that range, we're now at zero. Uh, that was at 25%. And then it went up to, after Bullard went out, he went up to 90%, and then 95%. And then the market was even pricing in the possibility of three rate hikes in March. And it was absolutely crazy. It was bonkers. And then, uh, you know, maybe we can go to, to this next chart. Um, then right here, uh, maybe about three, 2 p.m. yesterday, it was a 98.6% chance of a double hike. Wow. And then this was filmed at 9.16 in the morning today. Now we're only at a 65% <laughs> chance, and there's a 34% chance that it will only do, do a single hike. So the market really can't make up its mind. Um, just can you, can you tell us how you're thinking about the interest rate, the yeah, futures market, and I, what's it saying? I think that the Fed is getting a lot of angry phone calls from people who lost a lot of money because that's not <laughs> supposed to happen. <laughs> so these trades, when, when people put on these trades, they lose enormous leverage because they usually don't move that much. When you have moves like this, I'm thinking a lot of people got liquidated here, and that, that's, that's just part of the volatility as well. So the way the Fed shifts interest rates, it's not, it, it, it's not so much as adjusting the overnight rate at meetings. It's mostly about forward guidance. It's mostly about telling the market what I'm going to do. And when the market sees that, mm. it prices in instantly. And so if you are a borrower and you go to the market, that's the rate you face, whatever the, the Fed guided into the market. Now, usually the Fed is pretty good at this, but right now, obviously, there's a lot of volatility because the market doesn't know what to think. The market was expecting a 25 basis point hike. The Fed has already been very, very close, very clear in that we're going to hike in March. Last week, we had some Fed speakers who came out and said, "Hey, I don't, I'm, I'm not on board with a 50, 50 basis point hike. 25 is good to me." Mm -hmm. That's what the market was thinking. Then you have this really hot CPI reading come out, 
and the market you know it's getting confused some people are thinking maybe this is so the CPI reading it's so hot maybe the Fed might hike 50 basis points so that was creeping into the price a little bit now everyone knows that the first principle of the Fed of the Powell Fed is that we don't surprise markets whatever we're going to do we're going to telegraph it we're going to take out an ad in the New York Times we're going to tell everyone what we're going to do and so when we had this hot print and then we had Bullard just kind of jump out and say, I think 50 basis points is a great idea. And so when the market heard that, they thought, mm -hmm. oh, that's the Fed telling us they're going to hike in 50. And so, boom, that's in the market. But, there's a, but since then, there's, a, there's been another development. Now, overnight, it appears that sources, now, sources within the, uh, within the Federal Reserve gave a story to, to Nick of the Wall Street Journal, who was saying that, you know, I, I, I'm, not too feel, I'm not feeling this 50 basis point hike in March, maybe, but probably not. So that, in my view, is more authoritative than Bullard, because the way that the Fed works, it's kind of like a court system. You have these peripheral people, like the Fed presidents, who have a say, but are not super influential. The true core, the true core of the Fed resides in Washington, D.C. That's the chair, the vice chair, Oh, and uh, president of the New York Fed. Now, when you have someone leaking this out to the Wall Street Journal overnight, that, that definitely comes from the core, and they're, they're pushing back against Bullard. And so this is not uncommon. Fed presidents, they say many things, and they are entitled to say many things. They have their views, but they don't have as much influence as the core. And internally, the core is called the Troika in the Fed. And it looks like they were leaked out, that they, they're pushing up back against this, which is why you see the pricing being less exuberant this morning. Um, so, again, the Fed doesn't want to surprise the markets. What they're doing right now is they're just telling you that, you know, hold your horses, we're not there yet. Yeah, and so uh, this is the March 2020 Fed funds future, and from this, the probability of rate hikes are interpreted via a calculation from the CME that, that is way over my head, but that huge sell-off that actually is a you know rates going up because it's when you see 99.7 that means 100 minus that so that yeah. means uh, you know 100 97.76 means essentially 24 basis points so that huge sell off uh, it went from 24 basis points to 40 basis points and you can see that people have actually been buying it back so that thinks that uh, that the fed perhaps like bullet bullard oversold how hawkish the fed was going to be um, so so that is just I just want to explain that chart there. Here. Yeah, you're exactly right. So lower, lower, lower means um, higher rate odds, higher implied rates, and higher in prices means um, uh, less likely that they would do double hikes. I've got a question for you, Joseph. Um, Jack, maybe you could go to the, the slide that we're talking about, just uh, yield curve inversion in general. But yield curve inversion has been a pretty hot topic in general, the yield curve inversion being when the short end of the curve actually rises above the long end. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of chatter uh, and we've got a couple of charts here that kind of indicate that, you know, yield curve is coming uh, within the next year or so, right? What we're looking at here is the euro dollar curve, which is uh, saying that we're not going to get a, uh, a rate cut until 2025, but that a, um, you know, uh, the yield curve inversion actually looks much more imminent. So, A, do you agree with this idea that we do uh, have inversion coming? And B, do you agree with that idea being connected to recession? Mike, I think you're exactly right to focus on this inversion because that, that's, a, that's a big deal. So what the euro dollar is, it's basically it's a pure bet on Fed policy. So the euro dollar curve mm -hmm. is basically uh, the spot interest rate for uh, 
for three month euro dollars for three month LIBOR going into the future. Now it follows closely with the path of policy. So when the Fed hikes rates, the 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 LIBOR LIBOR goes up as well, and the path of the future LIBOR is what the market thinks the path of Fed hikes will be. The market here is saying that the Fed is going to hike, 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 and then it's going to start cutting in 2025. Now, why does why would why would mm. the Fed cut interest rates? Well, obviously because the economy might be in recession. So that that's exactly what the market is suggesting. It's suggesting we're going to have a pretty short cycle and we're going to back into recession, and the Fed is going to start to have to cut rates in 2025. Um, but just to be clear, though, this, these market pricing is volatile. So tomorrow, mm. it, the market could change its mind. But right now, it's, it's, uh, it's a bit concerning of, of what it's implying. It's implying that um, you know, we're, going to have a, we're going to go into recession in a few years. But hey, that, that's what the economic cycle is. I bet folks are going to be thrilled to hear that. Um, Joseph, one, uh, one idea that you expressed, uh, you know, we were talking about this, this episode before we went live, was this kind of idea of there was a, a pre-great financial crisis world and a post-GFC world. And that distinction matters a lot just in terms of the long end of the curve, right, and what yields are doing at the 10-year and the 30-year level. You just described your viewers like what the different worldviews are, like pre- and post-GFC, and how that impacts the longer end of the curve. When people think about curve inversion, what they're usually thinking about is um, tens and twos. For example, uh, when usually in normal times, you would expect the yield curve to be upward sloping. So uh, the amount of interest you have to pay to borrow for 10 years will be higher than the rate you have to pay when you borrow for two years. When that inverts, then what that means is saying, let's say, just for the sake of argument, let's say the 10-year is at 1% and the two years at 2%. That means it's more, it's cheaper to borrow money for a 10-year term than it is to borrow for a two-year term. That would be not normal, right? Then the yield curve is not upward sloping. What that often, when people look at that, what they often think is that, you know, there's a recession coming. Why do they think that? It has a lot to do with this chart here. So if you if you believe that the 10-year rate is simply the the expected path of Fed policy going to the future, then what you're saying is that after two years, then the Fed will start cutting rates again. Why would the Fed cut rates? Because there's a recession. So if you believe that the market is very good at pricing in whether or not the, there's a recession or not, whether or not the Fed will react to that, then when you see a curve inversion, what, you're, what, what you see then is that the Fed is quickly going to cut rates in a few years because there's going to be a recession. So that's that's a strong indicator for you if if you believe in that. Now I, I'm a bit hesitant about about that because I think there's a structural change in how the market works, especially when you look into look at something like the treasury market. Now pre GFC there's a market prices are largely determined by private sector actors. So you know what you think the ten year would be would would in large part, be, let's say, what you thought the Fed policy would be for the next 10 years. But post-GFC, there's some huge, huge structural changes in the world, such that I don't really think that's how the market works anymore. Um, one big structural change, of course, is that the private sector is less involved, and the public sector is hugely more involved in the sovereign debt market. You can see that in two ways. One mm. is, of course, quantitative easing. You have People, not just the Fed, but the ECB and the BOJ, basically buying tremendous amounts of government bonds, 
And if that's the case, then it's really hard for me to see that longer the 10-year yield, for example, representing what market participants think the path of policy would be, because there's just so much government involvement. Um, and government is involved in another way as well, negative interest rates. Now, we have a 10-year, that's about 2% today. In Japan, it's 25 basis points, and you know, not much higher in the Eurozone. <laughs> so you have these people, these foreigners, who are, who are, who have, who are just starved for yield, and they look at what we have in the U.S., about two percent. That's 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 like wow. That that's a gift from heaven from them. So they're all coming here and they're buying the two-year, <laughs> and uh, that has an impact on market pricing as well. So maybe the two-year, maybe the ten-year, for example, is low, not because people think that the Fed is going to cut rates soon, but part of it could be just because all these people from Japan, from the ECB, from the European Union, coming in and buying ten-year treasuries. Um, so that's that's one aspect of how the GFC changed the world. Another aspect is through regulation. Now, post-GFC, the government forced a lot of systemic, systemically important institutions like banks, um, government-sponsored enterprises to buy U.S. treasuries. So these guys, they mm. have to buy U.S. treasuries no matter the price, really. So again, if you have this non-economic demand, buying treasuries, the treasury market is, is not going to represent, uh, well, not have a very good representation of what the market expects um, the path of policy to be. So when you're looking at the tens two spreads, I don't think that's that, that means the same thing post-GFC as it, as it did pre-GFC. Mm. Yeah, and uh, the 10-2 the spread, when people talk about the yield curve inversion having predicted you know every single recession, that is the ten two spread, or maybe it's the thirty five, but it, it's it's the Treasury yield curve. Yeah, Whereas when people are posting curve. charts on Twitter, it's the Euro dollar twenty twenty five minus twenty twenty four thing. It's and it's in two basis points in inversion. It's like extremely specialized. It's like it's like what mm -hmm. my goal, let's say, is to have like four guys be the number one podcast in the world. But then like I don't that doesn't happen. So I'm like, well, actually, I have the most popular forward guidance uh, podcast that is, uh, you know, uh, uh, where I work for a company that's in crypto where the the one of the co-founders last names rhymes with, you know, Pippolito. Like that's Schmipolito. You know, and then Schmipolito. Yeah, it's, it's, it's I'm like if you make such a narrow category that it's it's like the the euro dollar inversion is like a poor man's yield curve inversion. And also like this overnight index swap uh, curve inversion that is. It's it's a pretty arcane thing. Uh, it's the ten minus two year spread, one year out. Uh, should sh a lot of people are saying that Joseph, this is a science sign of worry. What do you say? And can you also explain what it is? Yeah. Sorry. So when I was talking about the treasury market, so as I mentioned, there are idiosyncrasies in the treasury market that make it so that it's, um, you know, it's the people who participated aren't purely buying and selling according to like what they view economic fundamentals to be. The overnight index swap is, is is a much pure pure measure of the expectation of Fed policy. So if you have, let's say, a two-year OIS, it, it's basically an estimate of what the path of um, Fed policy will be for the next two years. So technically what it is, is um, let's say, Jack, you and I do an uh, OIS swap for two years. Then I'm yeah. going to pay you according to the overnight Fed funds rate every single day. And you're going to pay me. That's floating. Yep, floating. And you're going to pay me a fixed rate. Now, what that fixed rate will be is going to be a calculation of what's the equivalent fixed rate 
for receiving the overnight index, overnight Fed funds rate for two years, right? So because they're, they're designed to be equivalent, that fixed rate is the market's best expectation of what uh, the path of policy will be for, for the next two years. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's a pure bet on um, just uh, what the Fed will do. So it's, it's a, it's, there's no all that other um, stuff that you would get in the Treasury market. And what that what the uh, what the OIS curve is showing is the same thing that people are talking about that there's some inversion one year out between the tens and the twos. So that you have to keep in mind though that I mean, how do you price that? Part of it is going to be influenced by what the cash treasury market does. So um, so that that's something to keep in mind. But that to me would would be more. A, but the OIS market would be a, a clear indicator that there is a there is some concern that the Fed is going to have to cut rates soon, and the cycle, rate high cycle, will be very brief. I want to ask you, Joseph, about uh, the chart that we have now, which is yesterday we had a 25 basis uh, point sell-off in the two-year chart. By the way, the poster of this chart did not specify what that chart was, but I know because I had you know done the calculation before. Um, is and this and they're saying the last time we saw rate moves like this, Bear Stearns was not fine, implying that the implied volatility on the front end of the yield curve that we are seeing, that we haven't seen since 2009 and 2008, indicates that something is, is wrong about the, mon the plumbing of the monetary system. What do you think about that? So when, so the way that a lot of these Bear Stearns and a lot of uh, financial actors, uh, they make their money is that they borrow short term, often overnight, and they buy longer dated assets. And they earn the spread between um, their longer dated assets and their short-term liabilities. When you have rate fall, what, what, what you're doing, you're, two things are happening. One is that your longer dated assets, they're worth less because when rates go higher, you know, fixed income prices go lower. So you're hit on that side. The other side you're hit is that your funding costs go higher as well. So again, whatever you're buying, it's worth less and your overnight loans or short-term loans, you have to pay more to, to, to maintain that. So you get squeezed and, uh, you know, you probably have to get out of that trade, and so then they just s sell their assets. Sometimes that's in fire that creates a fire sell dynamic. So that's why you don't really want to have a lot of volatility in short rates. That's that's one thing. But I would think that the structure of the financial system is pretty different today. So that was a lot of volatility yesterday, and I'm sure sure some people got liquidated, and that's not good. But the Fed is a lot more active in managing the interest rates today than they were back then. So um, I think I would expect that they would have more speakers come out and offer more clarity of what their path of policy would be, whether or not they do 50 basis points, whether or not they do 25 every, every meeting and so forth. And that, that's going to dampen down on this volatility a lot. So I, I, I don't see it escalating like it did in the past. Yes. And I also have done some work on this and bond the the short end of the yield curve from let's say march 2007 to march 2008 it it rallied about 300 basis points that's wow. a huge amount compared to where we are at now yeah so there was as as some you know def deflationists and people who you know tend to have a certain view of say like Low rates are tight money. In, in some instances, in in, in, the, in the in the follow in the way that people want safe collateral when shit hits the fan. So 
the the uh, the two year rate going from 450 basis points to 150 basis points in a year is a sign of extreme stress, and it was in 2007. We were in a huge bull market in short-term rates, and that was, in some ways, a harbinger of the uh, financial contagion and chaos that was to come. Now, we are in a bear market in short-term rates. Uh, about a year ago, the two-year was at 11 basis points, and now we're at, what, 150? So that means that people are dumping their safe collateral. So it is a totally different ballgame. And the the chart here indicating, oh, we had a 20, last time we had a 27 basis point hike, that was... A, that was a uh, a sell-off in rates that was a sort of a a bear market rally, if you will, or a, a bull market sell-off, if you will. Like it was, you know, when, when crypto goes from when Bitcoin goes from ten thousand to sixty thousand, there are days in the middle where it has an eight percent sell-off, or sometimes even bigger than that. In the same way, like those were outliers. So, uh, to me, uh, the the uh, comparison between now and two thousand eight doesn't hold much water. I, I get the point about commodity uh, prices are surging and you're having high inflation. Uh, to me, that you know, I don't think that means that the banking system is going to collapse um, in a year. I, I shouldn't laugh at it. Like I, I do seriously entertain that thought, and I, you know, I, I always should. But just I was going back through a January two thousand and eight Fed paper, and they were just talking about how this how credit spreads were blowing out, and it was the LIBOR to OIS spread, it was the euro dollar spread, and all these signs of distress in the plumbing of the monetary system that I don't think the Federal Reserve is talking about now. And I've, in fact, let me actually pull this up. Um, like in, in, this is a meeting, I think, in March 10th, 2008, right before, a few days before Bear Stearns was going to uh, be liquidated. Uh, you had Bill, Mr. Dudley, Bill Dudley, say this. Financial conditions have worsened considerably in recent days. Credit spreads have widened, equity prices have declined, and market functioning has deteriorated sharply. Although they're blah, 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 um, Although there are many factors that can be studied to explain what we're seeing, including the acute weakness in the U.S. housing sector, a deteriorating macroeconomic outlook, the loss of faith in credit ratings and structured finance products, we have entered a new dangerous phase of the crisis. Major financial intermediaries are pulling back sharply and raising margins more than uh, previously, shrinking their collateral lending books and raising the haircuts. Uh, we have appeared to pass that point, and they noticed that a failure of Peloton, which is a major hedge fund invested in mortgage-backed securities, uh, might have triggered a dangerous dynamic. So to me... I'm not like I would be shocked if people at the Federal Reserve were having those types of conversations right now. And to me, Joseph, the only thing, the only similarity that I see is the failure of Peloton. But in this case, it was, you know, <laughs> the home bike stock crashing instead of a hedge fund bailing. Am I right, Joseph? I, or, I agree. or are there similarities? I yeah. agree with you completely. There's, there's, there's nothing. Everything seems fine to me. Um, and listen, so the, we have a tendency to fight the last crises, and the last crises was in the financial system, in, in the banking system, and there's been just so much change since then that, uh, to me, it, it's very unlikely that we would have the same crises in the same place. It's going to be in new places. It's probably going to be in, uh, let's say, uh, uh, like maybe mutual fund liquidity, stuff like that. For example, if you remember in March 2020, you had a lot of debt funds, open-ended debt funds, for example. They, they wanted to face redemptions. They needed to sell their corporate debt, no market to sell, so they had some liquidity problems. It's probably going to be more something like that, these different um, a, a spaces in the financial sector that, um, that haven't garnered as much attention but have also grown significantly. Okay, uh, Joseph, if I can just supply a few charts to to support our view if you can call it call it that um 
credit spreads really have not blown out. Uh, these are the credit spreads. A triple B is in the dark blue line, and that looks like a big a big rise, but it, it really isn't. And what's interesting to me, Joseph, is that triple C credit, the worst quality. I guess there is worse. Um, that that is the best performing credit. So, you know, why is it that the worst credit is performing the best? That's interesting to me. And then also, Joseph, and this is a, a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, is people saying. They take an ET, a, a credit ETF like HYG, a high yield, they own high-yield bonds, and they say, oh, it's down 4.76% year-to-date from January 1st to now. That's a sign of stress. Credit spreads are blowing out. But I think that a lot of that sell-off is not due to credit spreads blowing out. It's due to the interest rates, literally just rates rising. You know, when you have a when treasuries have interest rate risk and essentially no credit risk, uh, perhaps some, some you know, Bitcoin maximalists uh, <laughs> would, would say it does have um, – but uh, essentially, no credit risk. You know, like when you owned a investment grade product or, or, or a corporate bond, that has credit risk. And most of HYG's sell-off has been due to interest rate risk, not credit risk. And you can see that by comparing the HYG in purple to HYGH, which is the interest rate hedged version of, of uh, HYG. And you'll see that uh, it's only down 2.9%, less than half HYG is down, indicating that it's interest rate risk. It's, even way, it's way more dramatic if you look at LQD in purple here, uh, investment grade credit, which has credit, rate, credit risk and interest rate risk. The LQDH, the interest rate hedge version of, 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 L, of, of uh, LQD, is only down 1.91%, uh, while LQD is down 6.55%. So you're, uh, you, you, the, the, the phenomenon that you're talking about, Joseph, how raising rates destroys value, it does destroy value, but that value is being destroyed by the raising, the, the dumping of, of, of risk-free collateral, not credit spreads blowing out. Yeah, so you're exactly right. I mean, when you raise, when you raise rates, you're going to have, it's going to impact fixed income, right? So, I mean, doesn't that fixed income prices can go down because there's more credit risk or because of interest rate risk? Obviously, the Fed is hiking rates, so there's, it's going to be mostly interest rate risk. But, you know, I would actually step back and say, take a bigger picture look at this. We have a lot of inflation, right? What is inflation? Inflation is higher cash flows for corporations. Inflation is more money. Debt is, is a fixed liability. So when you have an inflationary scenario, you necessarily, in my view, you would have less credit risk because you're going to have more cash flows to pay your fixed rate debt. So it, it doesn't make sense to me to, to, look at, to, to look at inflation and then also uh, look at more credit risk because you know, that inflation is going to feed through the, the companies. You know, higher prices, higher revenue, and that, that means that they can pay their fixed income obligations, which they took out a few years ago when interest rates were at historic lows. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. I talk to a lot of fast-growing crypto-native funds, crypto banks, exchanges, and the like, and they all tell me they have the same two problems. One, their treasury management setup sucks. They've got analysts wasting time and money on manual transactions. Two, they are not happy with their current security setup. They're sharing passwords, they're sending test transactions, and they're worried that their funds might be at risk. Fireblocks is a platform that solves all of that for you. They're a one-stop shop portal, which automatically plugs into exchanges, trading venues, etc. They source deep liquidity and solve everything from day-to-day -day crypto transactions all the way down to complex DeFi strategy. And the best thing about Fireblocks is that they offer scalable solutions with industry-leading technology. 
doesn't matter if you're a two-person crypto fund or a 2,000-person crypto exchange, these guys have you covered. And the last thing that I'll say about this company is that I have known them for years. They are a high-integrity team. They ship product like no other. I would trust them with my own funds. So click the link at the bottom of this page and tell them that I sent you. Very, very important that you click the link at the bottom here. Otherwise, they're not going to know that I sent you. And then how am I going to get credit? So help a brother out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Tell them I sent you. I actually never heard, maybe this is just, um, I'm revealing my own ignorance here, but that's a really interesting perspective, which is just that more inflation equals more cash flows in general. Um, I, you know, I, I, yeah, yeah, that's, that's how I think about it. I mean, for example, let's say from an employee perspective, Mm. we just go higher, right? That's more money. Of course you can buy less. That's not good. Mm -hmm. But when you're talking about debt, your obligation is fixed. So your interest rates payments are are set. So how would you kind of, you know, even zooming like one level further up here, uh, just to synthesize your kind of view of 2022 and kind of the macro picture in general, right? So we've got a situation where uh, it looks like we're heading into an environment of secular inflation in general. Uh, The Fed is probably looking at credit markets very closely, and it doesn't look entirely like there's signs of stress. Uh, As a listener of Forward uh, forward Guidance, um, I almost just said Forward Margin, Forward Guidance, uh, I really like what you had to say about, you know, some of these huge cap stocks like Meta, right, selling off like 30% in the day, largest uh, equity wipeout ever, I'm pretty sure. Um, You know, Snap was trading down 25%, finished up 43%. Uh, I really like your your, um, connection that that means that liquidity is kind of thin in markets, and this is not a sign of healthy markets in general. So how do you kind of thread all of this together, right? Because you got a lot of people who are listening to this and they're like, what are risk assets going to do? What is crypto going to do? What are stocks going to do? It seems like a weird um, melting pot of different factors where you actually have, you know, credit markets that are behaving in a somewhat, uh, you know, healthy pattern, but inflation is an entirely new thing and markets just don't seem like they know how they're going to react. Uh, I'd be curious to just get your like overall like 10,000 foot view on things. Yeah. So I think the bigger picture is that, so the Fed is going to be pretty aggressive because come on seven and a half percent inflation that's emerging markets right that's that's not what i mean yeah. that's that that's not what people expect when, when they look at the u.s when they look at the fed so they're going to have to they're going to have to be more aggressive mechanically what that does is that that hurts the value of, of fixed income securities right so that means treasuries and you know the ig and all of that that's going to sell off and the thing is, though, that you can't just hurt fixed income securities without also hurting equities because the people who own them, mm. who own fixed income securities, also own equities. It's connected in that sense. Why people buy equities, whether or not it goes higher, it goes lower, that's, a lot of that is it's difficult, it's intangible. But what rate hikes do to the fixed income market, that's easy, mechanical. And so, in my view, what's going to happen is that as the Fed becomes more aggressive in hiking rates, a lot of these investors who hold both bonds and stocks, they're going to lose money on their bond market portfolio, and that's going to have to force them to sell some of their equity portfolio to rebalance. And that Mm. means there's a direct relationship between more aggressive Fed and selling in equity markets. And when you have conditions that are fairly liquid, like you mentioned, Mike, that that um, that could have a very nonlinear impact on where, where, uh, where risk assets end. So I think we saw some of this in January. So the Fed started becoming hawkish uh, late last year, early this year, and you already have the first wave of selling in risk assets. Now after the CPI print yesterday, 
I think there's an expectation they will become even more hawkish. And so that's that that is not good news for risk assets, which you see the sell-off yesterday and today as well. So um, as the Fed becomes more hawkish, that's probably going to continue, in my view. Mm. Joseph, I've got a, just another question about uh, yield curve inversion. We've got this chart of the euro-dollar futures curve uh, priced in points or whatever, not priced in yield. By the way, this chart comes from uh, our friend DC Analyst, who a brilliant money market analyst on Twitter. And actually, you know, Joseph, I, I heard recently that DC Analyst was actually uh, approached by the Fed to uh, be, be a senior uh, Fed trader because they knew so much about things. But then the Fed took a look at their profile picture on Twitter and they were like, oh, actually, you know, no, I'm just kidding. No, no, tons of respect for DC Analyst. Brilliant. Um, they post this chart in orange. We have the euro dollar futures curve as of last week on february 4th in green we have it as of today and from this sort of m3 to m4 you do see that kink in the curve that euro dollar curve inversion my question is for you joseph is uh the rates are still projected to be higher isn't that a sign of of, of strength it's not as if uh they're projecting you know negative rates it's it's uh, the terminal rate has has risen, you know, and you you said earlier that what really matters for the futures curve is not so much the rate hikes being pulled forward into the future, but the terminal rate, that the the top of the Mount Mount Everest, you know, that final uh, uh, mountain pass, that going higher by itself, that is really going to be uh, what the what the future is going to hinge on. So can you just tell us about that? So the way to read this is, so let's say we're looking at, uh, I guess that the peak is U3. So what is it pricing in there? So you want to take 100 and minus whatever it's pricing there. Um, it looks like it, it's 98.5. So you would take 100 and minus 98.5, and you get 2.5. So that, that means the pricing and terminal rate about 2.5. That, that, I think... 97.5, right, Joseph? Sorry, 97.5. Or, or, or 97.75. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah, that's So right. about 2 and a quarter. Right, right. Uh, 97 point, yes, 97 Yeah, it's really, it's really small for you, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so, right, so two and a quarter. Uh, two and a, it's about two and a half. Two and a half, two and a half. to get these charts. 97.5 would be two, two and a half. Um, that's about one hike more than it was uh, the day before. So it's it's pushing a higher terminal rate. And in my view, that has a bigger impact on on the market than, than, the, than let's say, pulling forward hikes. A higher terminal hike. I think impacts a broader segment of the fixed income market. So if you if you guys think back to 2018 quarter four, that was the last that was the end of the last the Fed's last hiking cycle. So the futures was pricing at a terminal rate about three percent, and the market just kind of melted down. So in November or December mm. of 2018, it just kind of just just kind of glided down. Um, I in my view, I, I think that's probably the pain point for the market. So we're, we're not there yet. So, um, but if we if we do get there, I think that that presages more pain for for risk assets. But the interesting thing about this is is that hump. So I think maybe the market senses that as well, and they're saying that the Fed is going to go here, and then it's going to have to quickly cut because because maybe the the mm. the market can't handle it. But but this stuff changes every day, so we'll see. I think we actually have Jack a chart on that somewhere here. The Mister Blonde. Um, uh, I can continuously find myself referencing on the show has kind of been referring to uh, or, you know, looking at the last six month trading pattern of the current day versus, um, 
you know, late uh, 2018, which is when the infamous Powell pivot occurred. Uh, now, obviously, you know, big disclaimer and caveat here, I want to be very careful about chart crimes, you know, layering one chart uh, on top of the other is never science, right, uh, as it's often suggested on Twitter. Um, but, you know, we, we showed this chart last week uh, when it was Mark and I going through it, and we were looking at actually um, the S&P back then, the S&P as well as high-yield credit spreads. Uh, so what we're looking at now is just, these. this is basically the same chart, it's just one week in the future. On the left is what we showed last week, on the right is what we're showing this week. And it's continuing to basically hold the same pattern. Um, and you guys should go check out um, Mr. Blonde. He's like, history doesn't often repeat, but it certainly does rhyme. Um, and I think, you know, zooming in here, uh, I'm trying to read, but that, that is that, that huge sell-off in um, risk assets or growth assets, uh, Joseph, that you were referring to below. So, so that could still be coming on the horizon. Obviously, uh, correlation does not equal causation, but it's an yeah, interesting chart to look chart. at. I've been, try- hey, I've been trying to get him to come on the show. Um, so, Mr. Blunt, if you're listening to this, my man, <laughs> you're getting plugs here. Please come on the show. I'd love to chat with you. Um, guys, I want to close on uh, the stress tests that are upcoming. Uh, so there's a pretty uh, incendiary, let's call it headline from Bloomberg today, which is Fed's annual stress test to assume massive joblessness, commercial <laughs> real estate crash. <laughs> That's a pretty bold headline. That's a pretty bold headline. Uh, Joseph, I know you have some thoughts on this. Uh, what do you think? Uh, I, well, I mean, I think that already happened in in 2020. <laughs> we can just kind of rewind and see what happened then. You know? uh, we're at a point where everything is going back to normal. Like just today, uh, Las Vegas casinos are telling everyone, "Oh, you don't you don't have to wear your mask anymore," and you know the casinos are are booming. So that means commercial real estate is probably coming back as well, right? And eventually, people will return to the office, and that 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 saves a lot of the office real estate as well. Uh, so. You know, Fed has a habit of fighting the last war, and I guess they're like, "Oh, what if COVID happens again?" <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know what they're doing, um, but these usually are not super impactful in, in, in my in my opinion because um, you know they they know they can't let people fail. That would you know be a lot of very volatile events, so it's usually I think managed. Yeah, well, it's it's always interesting to read the stress test. I feel like Joseph, you maybe you wouldn't learn anything because you already know it, but for me, I always learn it. I read it when I was when it came out in 2020, and it, it was you know eye opening. And there were these other banks took huge write downs to their assets, but of course, so there that was on paper they became you know tens of billions of dollars poor, but their, the money in their account didn't change. It was just how they were valuing their, their loans and their loans on real estate and particularly commercial real estate. You know, Mike, you're. Uh, not recording from the office. I'm not recording from the office. Joseph, you're not recording from the office. Uh, so you know, office buildings are kind of in that sort of zombified area where like the occupancy rates are like uh, 40% in terms of are people actually in the office somewhere around there. But the official vacancy rate and the real estate industry defines vacancy as like, are they paying their bills? And everyone is paying their bills. So there's no reason on paper for banks to uh, uh, you know get hit. But I think that could be a pocket pocket of weakness. I mean, there really has to be a cause of financial distress. In 2008, in retrospect, it was, it was obvious. Uh, it was extremely bad loans that were mortgaged and uh, you know, put into highly sophisticated uh, structured products that were valued as if they were AAA, uh, as, as, as if they were as risky as a treasury, and they clearly weren't. Like, I think, what is the what is the risk these days? You know, you can't just say 
oh, the t two year is off 25 basis points. There's stress. Like, what, what is the cause of stress? To me, that is a potential one. And sorry to plug it twice, but my interview with Jim Bianco that airs tomorrow, uh, we, we do talk about commercial real estate. So, Joseph, what is the, uh, um, you know, a flashpoint? A potential, a potential risk. What's the greatest risk? Honestly, and you can't say inflation. The greatest risk is the sovereign market. I think it's just one. It's too big. Two, assist, relative to its daily liquidity, it's gotten so much, so much bigger than it used to. So that you know, you, we saw Facebook kind of just implode because of poor liquidity. Well, you know, the treasury market, it's kind of similar. So I'll give you some numbers. So um, let's say. In early 2000s, daily volume in cash treasuries was about uh, 400 billion. Today, it's about 600 billion a day, uh, but the total amount of debt is about four or five times more than it was in early 2000s. So, again, the amount of liquidity in the mar in the system has not scaled in proportion to the amount of debt outstanding. And furthermore, the go the official sector has basically forced large, large, large segments of the systemically important institutions to hold treasuries as safe assets. At the same time, the Fed is basically doing everything it can to hurt the market value of treasuries, hiking rates, doing aggressive QT that, that they've hinted at. So I, I, I find that to be the next weak point in the system. This private sector stuff, uh, banks, dealers, stuff like that, that was the last war, and there's been tremendous strides to make them safer. I actually think that banks look quasi-socialized to me. They're just really, really safe and boring. Um, but, um, but I, you know, things always happen in, in places that we don't expect. I mean, that's why they happen, right? We, we didn't expect it there, and we didn't really guard against it. And so I, I think this time hmm. I would be more concerned about the, the sovereign sector, not just in the U.S., in, in the EU as well, and in Japan too. So... Um, how are you going to? I think the end the end game probably has to be some kind of yield curve control. But uh, between then and now, uh, things have to break first. One thing that you know in your pre and post uh, GFC worldview, you know, I, I kind of found myself actually thinking, you know, about that old politician's phrase, uh, "Never let a good crisis go to waste." And uh, you know, I, I firmly, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I, I, I generally believe when there's a crisis, people are acting in the interest of trying to solve the crisis. But I wonder if any discussions were being had about, like, it seems very obvious, actually, uh, you know, okay, we don't trust the banks anymore. We're going to make them buy treasuries. Well, that has huge implications for how the yes, U.S. fund yes. itself and the amount of debt that gets issued. And it's like, I mean, that seems so obvious. Uh, you know, I can totally see how that measure would just get pushed through at the time of the crisis. But, you know, and I'm, I just found myself thinking, okay, the amount of outstanding debt in the world is five times higher than it was. No, treasuries, treasuries. I, I, overall, overall treasuries. Debt, I okay, treasuries. treasuries. Yeah. But it's like, that's, that's a shocking, that's a shocking difference to me. Um, and uh, I don't know. I, I don't really, I'm just thinking out loud. I'm just th listening to what you're saying and wondering in my head if these conversations were had at the highest levels of government. When these decisions were you know, I, I think I think you're making a really good point in that a lot of times these things the government has control over, uh, they do it in their self-interest and they're a high level. For for example, let's say Italy and Greece, right? If you remember a few years ago, there was a sovereign debt crisis. Italy, you know, their their funding rates go higher. Greece as well. What does the government do? They call the banks. Hey, you got to buy my debt. <laughs> you know that that helps a little bit, right? It's, right. It doesn't. It's not. It mm -hmm. helps a little. So they, they do have levers that they, they can pull to, to make things look better and um, help 
uh, solve these crises. But um, yeah, I, I I don't know how 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 much of that role that plays in this. I'm sure it goes into the consideration because because it does help the government a lot to to force people to buy their debt. Yeah, and like if you take the next um, you know the next logical step there, if you think about how empires structure themselves in general, like ancient world empires, right? They'd have like the core empire, like Rome, and then they'd have all these um, kind of whatever sister states or colonies or whatever, and they'd force them to pay tribute. You know, they'd be like, this is the amount of tax or tribute or whatever that you owe the mothership, so to speak, per year, uh, or colonialism, right? Um, we don't do that anymore, but it doesn't actually seem a gigantic leap in logic to say that the U.S. might eventually say, you, not just banks need to buy our debt that we're issuing, but foreign countries, allies of the United States, we lean on them to make them buy our debt. And that's like a form of modern tribute. Um, I'm thinking out loud, which is always dangerous to do in a podcast setting. But uh, <laughs> hey, you, you know, they kind of kind of happened a bit. Remember, you got to buy, you got to price oil in dollars, yeah. right? Then, okay, so what do people do when they get dollars? In practice, they buy treasuries. That That's what actually happens in real yeah. life. So uh Honestly, we used to have smart people running this country. So <laughs> they should be asking us, man. I'm, yeah. I'm just waiting for my call. <laughs> have them on the podcast, Joseph. We got a question for you from uh, the writer of the Blockworks newsletter, Byron, who says, "What would the reverse repo rate be at the moment if the Fed left it entirely to free market forces?" Oh yeah, uh, negative, negative five basis points, negative ten, negative twenty. I don't know. It would be very negative. Listen, the reverse repo facility is uh, is basically the Fed's way of putting a floor on overnight repo rates. So the logic being that if you have money, you and you can lend it to the Fed at the reverse repo rate, or you can lend it to the private sector. If the reverse repo, if the private sector rate, so if you can lend to the Fed at five basis points, you would never be willing to accept a lower rate in the private sector. Right now, there's so much money in that in that space. There's 1.5 trillion in the reverse repo facility. Without the reverse repo facility, all that 1.5 trillion is going to have to find some place to park. My, my gosh! In fact, I could see going down to negative 100 basis points. So that's just there's just too much wow. money in in that space. Um, the the reverse repo wow. facility is doing a tremendous amount of work to uh, to keep rates above zero. Wow. And the, the, then the follow up question is: Well, in this hypothetical scenario is has the fed taken eight trillion dollars worth of collateral off the market and added eight trillion in reserves because if it hasn't then then there would be yeah i i would push back against thinking about the reverse repo facility as a supplier of collateral because it, it in a trivial sense it is but it's really not so i really would just think about it as a deposit at the fed so because if you're a money market fund okay you put let's say a billion dollars in the reverse repo facility and you get a billion dollars in treasury collateral. That's true. But you don't do anything with that treasury collateral. It just it just sits in, in the custodian bank. So it really it's it, it really makes no difference to the private sector at all. So it, it doesn't got it. really add collateral to the to the um to the financial markets. Got it. We got a, a final question from Will Dukatis who wants to know would be curious to know if Joseph thinks the Fed will accelerate its balance sheet runoff, particularly in mortgage backed securities via sales. Yes, that looks like that's going to happen, and it makes sense for that to happen. And so the reason is that mortgage-backed securities don't pay off at the same rate as treasuries. 
So a treasury, you have a contractual cash flow, right? So every six months, I'm going to get a coupon. And when the, when the uh, uh, legal final date is there, it's going to pay off. Mortgage-backed securities are different. On paper, they're like 30 years. You pay back in 30 years. But in practice, though, what happens usually is that, let's say somewhere in 5, 10 years, there's a recession, rates go back down to zero, mortgage rates get really cheap. So I take out a new mortgage to pay back my old mortgage. So in practice, what on paper looks like a 30-year bond is probably just a 7- or 8-year bond because eventually I'm going to prepay it. Right now, it looks like we are going to a higher rate scenario. Mortgages probably aren't going to prepay. So that 30-year bond is probably not going to be fully paid off until 30 years later. That's going to be too slow for the Fed. So they're going to have to sell some of that. Yeah, very interesting. When you have a mortgage, as in you are the obligor for, to buy a house, you borrow money, you have the option to pay it back early. And then the person who owns the mortgage, who's lending you the money, they are short an option because you can pay it back. And so if rates go down, then you can pay it back early and refinance. But you're saying if rates go up, they're not going to do that. Yep. Okay, that makes sense. Yep. And so that, that greatly extends the life of the agency MBS. It's going to mean that they're not going to roll off very quickly. So if they want to get it off the balance sheet, they're going to have to sell it outright. Yeah. Thanks so much, Mike. And yeah, Joseph, thanks so much for coming on for this emergency episode. Bye, guys. Yeah, bye.